0: Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Wind Gap. There's a murder there. Another one's missing now. Get me a story.
1: Oh, mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me.
0: Mama says I need to be careful around you. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson.
2: And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: Each week we'll break down the latest episode and occasionally feature interviews with people who worked on the show itself. This week we have an interview with Gillian Flynn, the author of the book Sharp Objects. She also helped adapt her own book for this show. Uh, We're also introducing something new in this podcast we, we introduced it last week but just if you're joining us for the first time we're gonna do a book section at the end of the episode which means if you've read the book uh written by the great Gillian Flynn then uh we will be covering some sort of like hints and foreshadowing that's in this episode but we're gonna leave it to the end so as not to spoil any of you who haven't read the book so there will be no spoilers in this episode until the very end where we'll talk about some like little little things we want to talk about if we know what's coming so um, and
2: we'll make a lot of noise so you know like to turn the podcast off if you don't want to be spoiled
0: we won't just ambush you with spoilers I yeah promise.
2: we'll just start screaming hog heat hog heat that'll be your cue
0: <laughs> yes listen for the hog heat that's your that's your cue to leave uh so before we get into all that, I, I just wanted to, we got a bunch of emails from listeners and you can email us to still watching pod at gmail.com. Uh, we got a whole bunch, uh, this week, mostly telling us what we missed, which is, I think is like podcast listeners favorite things to email about. And I don't, it's not like I blame them. It's just like when, when you miss something, usually you hear a lot from listeners. And mm-hmm. so something that we didn't talk about, um, enough were the uh like the are the words that are hidden around uh the world of sharp objects we talked about like the um, sort of subjective exit sign that she says like last chance to change your mind when she's leaving um st louis and we talked about how her on her volvo it says dirty in the in like the dust on the trunk but uh, a bunch of Eagle eyed viewers have noticed since that there are words sort of hidden all around the episode. Uh, I'll read this one email. We got a bunch though. This one comes from Amin. Amin writes, On the topic of words sort of secretly placed around the episode, before we learn Camille used to cut herself after the bar scene when she almost approaches John Keane, while she's sitting in the car, the radio displays, display says wrong, uh, screen cap attached. Uh, so, but that's just one because there's also there was the word girl scratched in the painting of um Emma's dollhouse. So like basically there are these little words sprinkled throughout the episode that a lot of people have noticed. There are some in this episode, episode two, that we can talk about. I talked to Gillian Flynn about it a bit too. But basically it's a um it's a it's an interesting and clever way, and apparently this is all Jean-Marc Vallée's idea, but it was an interesting and clever way to sort of integrate this thing that happens in the book where the words that are written that Camille has cut into her body as the book progresses, they like flare up. She kind of like feels them. She's like, I felt the word like dirty on my elbow or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And that, uh, that like, this is a way they could do that because there's no other way to do that. Um, well, there are. You could have like floated the words up on screen with like superimposed text or something <laughs> mm-hmm. like that. But that would have like, been
2: a great, a great touch.
0: That would have been like a little, a little too heavy handed. So, anyway, Gillian Flynn goes into that. Uh, it's interesting though, because it's turned the show, uh, this show unexpectedly in, into like, a little bit of Reddit fodder because I feel like people are are like looking really closely for where the words are.
2: Yeah, it's become sort of Easter eggy. I mean, are you yeah. saying Joanna that you don't want to hear Amy Adams say "ow, my dirty's hurting" or something like that?
0: <laughs> well, damn it, now I do.
2: <laughs> but like, also, in, in the, the words obviously were super Easter eggy, and we missed some of them. But also, there have been other little imagey things um, that were put into the first episode that we did not talk about on the podcast that I had missed. And especially in terms of like one shot of a little girl sitting creepily in a corner, right?
0: Yeah, Marion – so we got a bunch of emails about that, too. Um, basically, at one point, about halfway through the episode, the ghost of Marion, um, Camille's younger sister who died when she was a little girl, is sort of just, like, sitting on mm-hmm. a bench in the hallway upstairs at the house. Uh, and you, we see a bunch of ghostly figures in this episode as well. Yeah. So, like, that was that was a quick flash that you might have missed. But but by episode two, you're definitely, like, seeing, seeing the ghosts that Camille's seeing. But also you- all of this uh, – puts us like subjectively in the head of camille yeah. the, the words only come up as, I, I believe associated with scenes that camille's in and like it's her idea it's the word associations that she has they're usually connected to objects she either owns or is looking at um, and these ghosts are also i believe like things that you know she sees so um i don't know i think that's an interesting um l- light sort of trick in order to to do that so i don't know uh yeah so we'll like why don't we hear from uh, gillian flynn herself about the words about um how great it is that Christmasina messina gets to sweat so much in these episodes and and all that great stuff so here's before richard and i get to our rundown we're gonna let you listen to a conversation with gillian flynn Joining us today on the podcast is Gillian Flynn, author of Gone Girl, Dark Places, and Sharp Objects. She's also an executive producer on the HBO adaptation of Sharp Objects. Gillian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I I read this book all in a rush because it's so addictive. I read it last month in preparation to watch the show and then found that the show was sort of exceeded my expectations of, of what a, a possible adaptation could be. There's just been so much that you guys have done around this. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm so glad I get to pick your brain about it, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is um, <laughs> so much of the book is in Camille's head, right? And we get so much... Yes. Um, there was a potential that you guys could have done a sort of stereotypical detective story voiceover, but you opted not to. And I'm wondering, uh, at what point that decision was made, uh, in the process and, and then how you decided to keep it from her perspective without a voiceover.
1: You know, it was made very early on and part of the decision was, uh, that it would feel, it would feel too hard boiled detective that you can get away with it in a book um and in in sharp objects that my choice to do first person was very intentional um but that there's a very big difference between first person and a novel and that first person voice over and screen and to me, yeah, I love voice over when it's really well done and when it's done intentionally, as opposed to <laughs> sometimes when you hear it done where it's like oh they they Realized it, it didn't make sense and put in some voiceover. Right. <laughs> but I love it when, it, when it's done intentionally and done really well. But I really didn't think it it made sense for that because uh, a voice a voiceover is a really huge amplification device. And uh you know, I just I I didn't I I thought it was going to explode if it was done here. And I thought we could I thought we could still get away with doing it and getting all of Camille's voice and especially once we had Amy Adams on board because if there's one thing Amy Adams can do it's it's get people inside her brain. I mean, if you watch uh, Amy Adams uh, in addition to being a a beautiful actress and so good at emoting and so good um, at dialogue is an absolute master at the react shot. Mm. There's no one better I think in this entire business and the then re- the reaction shot. Camille is all about reaction. She's the ultimate empath. She's the ultimate watcher. Um, you know, she is, she grew up having to do that to survive because she had to f- figure out the temperature in the room at any given moment, the temperature of this town in order to survive. So she became someone who was constantly watching other people to figure out how to play. Any given moment, and and you get that with Amy. You get that idea. You, she walks in the room as Camille, and she's constantly clocking everyone. Yeah. And so once we had Amy, I just knew we could do it. I knew, you know, she can she can act out any sort of emotion with the flicker of an eyelash. So I knew we had it.
0: And for those who are familiar with Jean Marc Vallet's work on in Wild or Big Little Lies, like he he works a lot with with the memory and sort of blurring present and past, and that's something that, that works so beautifully in the show and keeps you so inside her yes. head. Is that something you guys had on the page as well? Obviously there are flashbacks in the book, but is that something you guys had on the page or is that something that Jean Marc Vallée either brought or amplified?
1: That was that was always part of it, that idea that memory was so important to Camille. And especially again, after not having the voiceover and not having, you know, Camille say, I remember when this happened, you know, (laughs) or this, you know, this happened in my childhood. This was important. Uh, Not having her actually say that, that we would need a way to get in and out of those moments elegantly. And that idea of, having her go back to this place and that she is quickly regressing um, as we all do or at least I do when we go back to our childhood uh hometowns, our childhood home. yeah. Um and that Camille being such a person of senses would be someone who was triggered um, very easily by a place, by a moment by a, t- a touch by, you know as you see in the first episode, by turning the corner of, of her room and immediately seeing what it was ten years before and what it is now, and 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 that um that idea. So that was always kind of there, but Jean-Marc was brilliant at being able to blur in and out of those and do that so elegantly and so beautifully and never have it feel you know have it feel kind of dreamy almost the way memories do. You know he was yeah. able to to capture that in such a, you know, such a singular way that I think is really hard. I think flashbacks are very tricky and I'm not, and a lot of a lot of times not fans of them because you know, they can kind of jar you and you go, Oh, here we go. Or, We're doing a flashback and they kind of jar you and pull you out of a moment. Um, whereas these to me, they, you know, they feel like you're slipping into a, Warm bath and then kind of going back out again and yeah. you know to me they they're, they have that dreamy effect that he was able to to really pull off.
0: Well, another thing you have that um, I think audiences kind of all discovered together on Sunday, certainly most TV TV critics I know didn't notice it um, with their advanced screeners is this device of the words that are sort of carved in different items or flash up that seems sort of subjectively associated with thoughts that Camille is having. Um, I know that there's a motif in the book about the words um, on her body sort of flaring up and this is a really clever way to incorporate that in a way that I don't think you could have done. Um, otherwise I'm I'm wondering where the, where this idea for the, for the words came from. I think it's so genius.
1: That is, I mean, wow. I mean, that was such a brilliant thing. As far as I know, that was Jean Marc. Uh, it certainly wasn't me. I can tell, <laughs> I, I can tell you, I, I can definitively tell you that did not come from me as, uh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, you know, I'd had conversations over the years with with people, you know, who were interested in the book off and on, you know, it 12 years getting the book to the screen. And it was always a conversation. How do you do the words are so important? And like you said, in the novel, you know, she would say, you know, I, I could feel the word cherry light up on my thigh, or I could feel, you know, dirty, you know, was, flickering on my arm there was always a conversation well we want to keep the words but you know it's so important that it's such a theme of the book that that she has you know that the that's such a connection to the words but how do you do it um so it was you know, i was so pleased um that we figured that out and i think that came from Jean Marc.
0: I love how unobtrusive it is it's not like text floating up over the screen it's just sort of like if you yeah if you catch it it flickers sort of you know there I think in episode two one there's like a banner um well um you know the, the mother is giving is standing up, um, up at the church at the funeral and she's talking and it says it flashes from hope to hurt and back to hope again and mm-hmm. it's just sort of like it flickers mm-hmm. you know in that way that yeah it's really impressive um, and, and I like that I like you know
1: it's, it's
0: you
1: are, are paying attention. You see it, but you don't. You don't. If you if you miss it, it's not a big deal either. Right. You know. No, I don't I'm not a huge fan of you know the cookies and the things that you you know must see or trying to make a huge thing out of it. But I think those are those are kind of lovely little um, little notes for people.
0: Yeah. Um. But it's so it's so interesting because as much as successful as as the series is uh getting us inside Camille's head, um you also have some facets uh especially in this episode, you've got a lot of things with Chris Messina that are you know outside of camille's experience whereas in the novel it's all subjective to camille's experience here we've got uh detective dick richard uh, doing some like <laughs> actual actual detecting in a way yeah. that i don't think we get a lot of in that what, what was uh what were the conversations around sort of uh building up his character or that investigation in that way
1: well i i First of all, I love Christmasina to death. So I'm always like, what can we do with Christmasina? <laughs> what do you need to be doing? But, you know, Make him pull, you can know, I w- pull
0: teeth out of a pig's head, you know. How
1: about pull teeth out of a pig's head? Right. You know, ultimately I wanted to remind people one, uh, you know, to me, to me, part of the theme of episode two is kind of like, welcome to Wind Gap. You know, this is what this, you know, this town created Camille and what is this town? This town, with you know all its beautiful southern niceties that you see with Adora, but the money comes from a hog farm which Adora owns. But I, you know, and uh, and I like that idea of reminding people of that in, in an interesting way, and reminding people of the gruesomeness of these murders without that. Violence itself. What better way than combining all of this together um, and having Richard do a do a little bit of detective work too? But so that idea of him procuring <laughs> a <baby bed> and, <laughs> and then you know later having to explain to Camille <laughs> what, what he's done. Yeah. So that was a, a good way to to give him some some actual detective work to put him to work
0: yeah you mentioned, yeah you're not just here to stand around and look pretty christina, pull some t-
1: exactly, t- you t- yeah. do that just fine, but get to work
0: <laughs> um you mentioned sort of this welcome to Wind gap idea, uh something that I really really enjoyed in this episode uh is the further exploration of the sharp class divide in the town. I know we got this line in the first episode about Wind Gap being, you know, it's either like trash or, you know, super rich. And, and yeah, that there's no
1: she's, in she's trash from old money. Right, <laughs> right.
0: Trash or old money. And, um, and in this episode, we get another, not, not to be all like, well, this was in the book. This wasn't, but another figure who's not in the book, is mm-hmm. as far as I recall, which is James Capisi's mom who represents sort of the, uh, this broken part of the population. She's a meth addict. She's sick. She worked for Camille's mom. Um, you know, she worked for Adora. Like, so what about uh that class divide, which exists in the book, but what about it are you more even more interested maybe into digging into uh in this series and especially like in in this time in our country, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm on all my writing now Something to do with classifieds and dark places. It's, you know, the, the farm crisis in the, in the 1980s and what that did to people and gone girl. It's, you know, the recession and the shopping mall that's gone bust in the middle town. And, um, you know, and here it's, it's the, you know, the rich part of town and, and the poor part of the part of town where the factory workers live and, you know, the, the mess problem, um, which, you know, the, the oxy problem, which, you know, when I wrote the book, you know, I had, that was again, that was 12 years ago. Now we have, oh my gosh, there's an opiate crisis. And I, you know, <laughs> that's right. I wrote yeah. that 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and that, that idea that she's a meth addict and, um, you know, again, works for daughter's mom, like you said. And uh, just again, to get to explore these, these two sides, you know, for, I, I always, Say for for every bit of prettiness, there's some ugliness somewhere else, um, and I just liked I liked to show when gap and you know that again that this is part of what Camille grew up with and what she saw and what she was aware of that others chose not to acknowledge and not to see that, but that Camille is someone who was sensitive and was aware of that and. You know, and that that you know that also leads you to that bit of town folklore of a uh, woman in white,
0: yeah
1: that I've always been always been fascinated with town folklore, and you know we all grew up, i think or I think most of us always grew up with some sort of local local sort of town monster or something in kansas city we we had one that we always looked for a lot along a creek that was in Kansas City. That was a Missouri monster. I think it was called Momo Missouri. Yeah, M-O-M-O. It's oh, no? <laughs> not, oh, wow. not very catchy. <laughs> not very catchy. We're gonna have to rebrand that. But <laughs> um, you know, but the woman in white. I, I, you know, now you have slender, you know, slender man. Yeah. Which is to me the, the sort of tie-in, a similar sort of thing that would, if we updated, would be more more along the lines of of the kids being fascinated with that but that idea of the woman in white which we'll see more of in the series
0: yeah i'm so glad you brought that up because i um so i was running this book club uh and and we read sharp objects in the book club so i always want to give like credit where it's due to to someone in my book club who brought this up not me but this idea of um witchcraft or or sort of a wish motif in in sharp objects that never occurred to me this idea of like mother maiden crone and on all this stuff and maybe like the words on camille's body as sort of like a ward and all of this like really interesting uh stuff that didn't occur to me but then when i was watching the show um especially the fact that it's Three teenage girls and they're sort of skating through town looking like witches to looking like weird sisters, you know, just like looking very, mm-hmm. very predatory and like all this sort of stuff. And then you have this woman in white figure, which please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe is in the book. And so, um, that seems to me to be like leaning even more into this idea of like, um, I don't know, um, witchy womanly power and, and, and all of that was, was, is this all just sort of like, <laughs> us overcooking it, overthinking it too much? Or is this a, is this a motif that's intentional in Sharp Objects?
1: It, it is definitely a motif. Woman in White was in the book, actually.
0: Oh, it was. Okay. okay.
1: Um, It was in the book. Um, But definitely that's a motif. I mean, I always felt like, you know, to me, it's, I wanted that sort of fairy tale feel. I wanted that idea of wind gaps It's this little town, it's surrounded by woods where bad things are happening to little girls, you know, it's run by, you know, these sort of powerful, witch-like women, you know, who may or may not be good, may or may not be bad, you know, but certainly bad things are happening and there are definitely references to, you know, witches and witchcraft and Emma. You know, makes mention toward the end a very strong gives a, a speech about Persephone and her fascination with Persephone. Was married to Hades, and you know, isn't she? Is she's just like her? And you know, there's there's mentions of powerful mythological women or fairy tale like women all throughout the book and and throughout the TV series. So that's yes, yeah, so very much intentional.
0: Um, and where did the I, the the visual of the girls on their skates, uh, and and not just the way that that relates to Camille's memory of herself and and Mary and her sister skating, but just sort of that visual of these three girls sort of like stalking through the town, like w- where did that idea for the skates come from? I think it's so brilliant. It is.
1: So cool and uh that was Jean Marc. I will admit I was not immediately sold on that. Was, in the book they travel around on golf carts. It's yeah. mentioned that, that that's how they get around town or like on, you know, little putt putt golf carts and you know, that's how they that's how they cruise and um he came up with a very smart idea of, you know, no they cru- they cruise around town on roller skates and um I was like, roller skates? What? <laughs> um, and then the second I saw it, I was like, hell yeah, roller skates. All right. You know, cause the visually, you know, and like you said, that wish like that there's that moment as the, you know, in the trailer yeah. also where they're kind of doing that strange undulating motion with their arms as they, and they do look like predatory birds. So creepy. <laughs> so <laughs> good. fascinating. I love it. <laughs> um, so you know, trust trust the guy with the brilliant visual mind as the moral of that story.
0: You talked about sort of um casting Amy as Camille and how that opened up sort of you know you you're, you're like okay we got Amy we we we've got a lot here going for Camille already uh, automatically um but I know that you had sort of been thinking about Amy for a while are there any um other performances or other casting decisions where maybe it wasn't immediately who you thought of but what they've done with the role has either like surprised you or sort of maybe even revealed more of the character that, that you didn't expect to see in this adaptation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just feel like we were so lucky. We were, I mean, I, it sounds fake to say that, but I mean, Patricia Clarkson is just such a perfect adora. So, you know, I knew she would be, be, and, and Eliza Scanlon, who plays Emma is just, such a one to watch. I can't even get over it. She's (laughs) just, she's so good. And you'll see, you know, anyone who's read the book, you know, knows the arc she travels along. And she just, you know, she has to play so much. She has to play, you know, this girl who's forced to be, you know, this idolized, sweet, innocent creature, you know, and, and you feel sorry for it because she wants so desperately in a way to be that because she's in this position where she's forced to be jealous of a dead sister. I mean, when you, when you actually think of that, you think how horrifying that is. And, and as you realize that, you know, that scope of that of that jealousy, it, it's so heartbreaking. But at the same time, you know, in episode two, when you see her... Her more, more naughty side when she's out with you know with her girls and putting vodka into the pop so that she can steal things, <laughs> sneak out, and see that and you see her as a, a real teenager. And, you know she's she plays that so perfectly and to, and to see her just toggle back and forth so effortlessly is is pretty pretty amazing. Um, you know Miguel Sandoval who plays yeah. Curry. Camille's editor, ah mm-hmm. oh. um Curry was always one of my very favorite characters in Sheriff Objects, even though he's such a supporting character, but he's such a key character because he's just the only voice of sanity, really you know he's He's the one who, who kind of calls in from the real world in the wind gap and injects reality and sanity and kindness into Camille's world and it was such such a treat to get to expand Curry's role and get to see his home life and <laughs> his wife Lean, and um, you know, what his house looks like and what his life looks like. And so for me that was so much fun to to get to write. You know, get to write for him and, and um you know and Taylor John Smith who plays John Keane. Yeah. Who is the who's the um, brother of Natalie yeah, Keen, who yeah. starts starts to become a, under suspicion. And you, you you get to see him, you know, at the funeral scene in episode two. You know, he he starts to come under suspicion mostly because he has natural human reaction of crying and being sad that his sister's dead. But you know, and when gap, you know, men should be met. and it's just, people start to become suspicious that he is openly crying and moping and crying all over town, as everyone says. And, you know, what, why is he putting on that show? Uh, and, but as the episodes go on, he's just, um, he is just, he was such, we found him and it was just such a dawning for us. It was like, ah, got him. He's so good.
0: <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, yeah, circle back to the Curry role because my co host Richard and I were talking about this, you know, because we were both journalists and obviously have a long time experience with our editors. And I know that you worked as, as a journalist for so long. Um, I was like, Curry is, is just like the ideal editor <laughs> that you want to have. You're like your dad editor, almost. right? Um, totally. Yeah. <laughs> he's such a dream But I, I, <sighs> um, I like what episode two does in terms of exploring, um, Camille's ethics around journalism, and like her her struggle with yeah. this, with this little thing at the end of, uh, of whether or not she got the mom's permission to be in the room, her lying to him at first, her thinking about taking that part out of the story, and then her getting so like defiantly frustrated with with her mom's uh, criticism of her that she's like you know fuck it and leaves it in. Um, mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could you could talk about that that whole little mini plot line in this episode
1: yeah I mean, just that idea that you know um you know and it's not i and I think you know I don't know to tell you the truth what the official rule is on that right now in in journalism, like I don't know if you know about that that idea of not having permit you know she's been given permission to go in the hounds, but not necessarily Natalie's room, so she goes in there and looks around and you know she she gets some real details about who this girl was and what she was like and you know she really wants it for the story and she wants to impress her beloved editor slash friend who you know is really pushing her to kind of do better and there's so much kind of involved in getting that paragraph basically like kind of just lands on that one paragraph that um that she goes back and forth on whether she should include and and, then on top of it, she lies to him and says she did get the mom's permission and yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then it, you know, and to me, it's a sign of, again, it's a sign of her kind of unraveling a little bit and, and and her regression back to teenage dumb that, you know, it comes down to her having that argument with her mom coming downstairs and Anna's having a tantrum and her mom instead goes after Camille. um, And Camille, you know, instead of, you know, is very hurt um, by the whole thing and goes upstairs but instead of acting like a grown-up would and dealing with that emotion gets back at her mom uh-huh. by just hitting set as if that's going to do anything as, right. that, as if that's going to teach her mom a lesson right by, yeah by going ahead and and compounding the the problem so so to me that's it's a sign of her her regression 'cause that's her, her, her regression because that's not how a grown up person acts uh a teenager accent. You know, there she is in her childhood bedroom and, um, you know, she does take that. Oh,
0: it's (laughs) Yeah. There's so much (laughs) great regressive stuff around Camille, like her, her candy habit, which, you know, we, we discussed is also sort of something that you do uh, often when you're in recovery from compulsive behavior, but like her litter, her little liquor bottles, her like crumpled brown paper bag of like little, you know, uh, like indul- mm-hmm. indulgences that she has or watching her pour the vodka into a water bottle like the same way you see um Emma pour vodka into a pop bottle you know yep. it's like it, mm-hmm. this this teen this like you just you revert to yourself and i like i feel like that's so relatable to revert to your teen self when you're put back in your in your childhood mm-hmm. um, yeah home the the last yeah. one i want to ask you and, and thank you so much again for for your time but um this, this this might be a dumb hokey question. But I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, I think that there are. Uh, <laughs> you set it up great. <laughs> I'm, uh, Thanks. I'm already in. <laughs> it's my it's my journalism <laughs> training. Um, there's just a number. So there's all these like literal sharp objects. There's obviously like Camille's relationship with cutting. There's uh whatever. Um, you know, murder weapons, there's teeth being pulled, there's all this sort of stuff, but there's also these like uh I think I think the the girls that that Camille went to school with that she's talking to the funeral, I think Jackie calls them vipers. Like there's all these like women mm. who are like so sharp. But the men also, and I was just wondering, um, I don't know that it's worthwhile picking just one thing, but if you had to pick like I don't know, the sharpest object, what is the sharpest object in this story so far?
1: Mm. Mm wow i mean to me to me i think it's to me i think it's uh, that needle i which is both literal and and figurative i think to me it's her getting that sewing kit uh in episode 2 and keeping that one extra needle that she keeps um that she ends up starting to hurt herself with because it's so much, it's it's the horrific embarrassment of the ripping of the dress at the funeral, which exposes, threatens to expose her cutting, which is such a personal, personal thing for her. And there she is. She's in the middle of this town that she hates, with all these eyes that might be on her, after her mom has, you know, taken her pen away from her and reduced her to a child, and she has to go out and buy this sewing kit. And she's also she's already in this reduced place, and it's, she gets that needle. And to me, that's where the, you know it's the beginning of it. It's it's getting that needle that that she's going back to, you know the cutting she's, you know she's, you know she's in danger of it she can't stop playing with it she can't stop you know pressing it against her finger pad um you know she can't stop looking at it she keeps it she keeps that one she tosses it but keeps that one extra one and to me that's so you know that's so symbolic of that beginning of the unraveling
0: yeah how perfect then that it's a sewing kit wow it's amazing mm-hmm. um well, thank you again so much. I am completely enamored of the show and I'm really excited that everyone thank you. seems so excited about it. And it's a, it's a great thing for us all to get wrapped up in the summer, I think. So thanks again. It only took 12 years. So, getting the screen, but worth the wait. Worth
1: the wait. That's so, yeah, right. a good lesson <laughs> in being stubborn, right? I love it. I love it. But. Thank you very much. It was nice speaking with you.
0: Yeah, you too. Thanks.
1: And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very,
0: very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically
2: I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere.
0: Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow in the dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple
2: Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn.
0: Well, that was Gillian Flynn. Thank you. And um, we're so grateful that she joined us on the podcast. But now Richard and I are going to get into it. This, this is season one, episode two, Dirt, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, it, written by Gillian Flynn. Um, this is an episode that takes place mostly around a funeral and a wake. I think it's uh, one day or maybe two days, but it's, it's, not, it's not a long time. A long stretch of time um judging by the fact that camille is in her funeral dress for most of it but we see um we see everyone sort of getting ready for the funeral richard's getting a shave and the preaker House is, is getting ready um something that i think is kind of interesting in this episode i might just like follow this thread for a little bit is like all the richard investigates the murder stuff what did you think of of this part of it uh you richard
2: I, I liked it. I mean, I think that, you know, this, at least in the book form, it's such a singular story, you know, yeah. in, from, from Camille's perspective. And so obviously the requirements of television, you need to sort of build that out a little bit. Um, and I was a little bit worried. I think I mentioned last week that like the Christmasina aspect felt like the most cop show to me, like aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he is a cop, but it also just felt like the more like the most like TV-ish. But in this one, you kind of, I don't know. You sort of see where he f- is starting to integrate into the story in a non-intrusive way, um, while while the whole thing still focuses on Camille. Um, Richard is serving a um, a necessary purpose.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm sort of split on it because I like Christmasina a lot, and I like the way they're introducing sort of um, more typical procedural almost murder mystery investigative stuff. But what's interesting about the book is the men um, are so peripheral – To all the women in the book. And so, like, this is, this is like beefing up his role a bit. He's not just a satellite to Camille. There are scenes that are just him. Um, so I I feel kind of split on it because I liked that about the book. It was, it felt kind of singular that all the men, Alan, John, Richard are all sort of pushed to the side. Um, and in like bringing him in more, Bringing Curry in more, which, I mean, I really love Curry, so, like, I have no issue with that. But, like, bringing them all in a bit more, um, I, I both like it, and I'm sort of like, well, it loses that, like, slight edge it had of, like, this is yeah. a woman's story sort of thing, you know?
2: It's a woman's story, and it's also such a psychological sort of memory piece yeah. that, like, to to expand the show's purview beyond her sort of dilutes that the power of the perspective, Um, which, you know, is a problem, but like at the same time, you know, let's face it, this is HBO. This is not, you know, PBS. This is, um, you know, there's a lot of money invested in this. I'm sure that in some ways there was a concern about you know, well, it needs to be a little more procedural. It needs to be a little more this, you know, it can't be so interior um, in order for people to like pay attention and, and enjoy it. I don't know if that's actually true either from a sort of theoretical standpoint about what the network said, or if, if it's true that that an audience wouldn't like something that was more singularly focused or interior. But my guess is that that's kind of the thinking in terms of, of, of why we're, we're getting a few different perspectives uh, other than just Camille's.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the, the things that we talked about in terms of like her memory, the words, the ghosts, like that all really does make it interior or or like pinned so closely to Camille's perspective that it doesn't dilute it too much to add these other characters because they don't get that uh perspective in the show. We're never no. in in their head even though we like see uh Richard going around. So yeah, so let me just talk about a few things that Richard does in this episode. Um he pulls some teeth out of a pig's head. Yeah. Uh, like you do. He goes to sort of the river where the first victim, Ann Nash, was, uh, you know, her, her, she was sort of strangled with a clothing line that caught in some rocks. I really like this detail, which I don't remember from the book, but I could be misremembering, but this idea that the townsfolk took the rocks that were in the river and took them out of town and smashed them mm-hmm. as if to like destroy their power. Um, I talked, you know, in the interview with Gillian Flynn, I talked a bit about uh, witchcraft folklore because we get another piece of folklore in this episode. And uh, she's telling me, I didn't – do you know that there's a, like, mythological creature in Missouri called the Momo? Well, I mean, that's
2: what the kids called me when I was living there. But, <laughs> I, I mean, it was rude and it was hom- it was homophobic, frankly. <laughs> um, no, I actually have not heard of that creature.
0: Okay, so it's a um- – it's like a Bigfoot-esque creature. It's and Momo is short for the Missouri Monster. Uh mm-hmm. And that's what they call it. And I don't know. It's like this this very regional bit of folklore that I had never heard of. And like, like the
2: Jersey Devil or something.
0: Yeah, like the Jersey Devil. I don't think we have one in California, or not one that I know of. Um, but I don't know. It's that. It's that like fun, interesting bit of like very, very regional and specific mo- monster uh, or haunting that that I find interesting. And like this, like, this superstitious idea of taking the rocks out of town and the way it's shot of them in like slow motion. It's almost like. Um, Um, like witch trial hysteria and, and all this sort of stuff. I just, uh, I find that uh, addition because it's like kind of in the book, but I find that the way that that's been expanded to be really interesting. So,
2: yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, I, in California, you do have the 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 dragon that ate Sharon Stone's husband's foot, so don't forget that.
0: <laughs> the mighty, mighty, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: don't forget that one. And um, That's very real. Um, but yeah, I love I love anything that dares to incorporate sort of superstition, myth, folklore, like mm-hmm. into something that is by and large a pretty like grounded realistic kind of thing you know obviously this is like an arty show but this is not a supernatural show this is not a show that's going to be um you know dealing with anything beyond the realm of the real um unless it's in someone's mind um and i think much in the way that true detective did in the first season anyway teasing at this sort of i don't know sort of you know ambient sort of latent spiritualism or whatever you know that kind of surrounds and and binds a community together is really interesting because as someone who lives in a huge city where that stuff exists but it's not quite as um concentrated, mm-hmm. uh, I find it really interesting to kind of look into in in on
0: yeah, and it's sort of like. It's a it's a way to talk about um, how towns, something like you know, small towns like Wind Gap, uh, sort of hold on to older notions in, in a way that's different from some of the other comments, like basically Camille calling everyone there a rube or whatever it is. Like that's one kind of way to call it backwards, that's insulting, and then this is another way to to call it sort of um, slightly out of time. Uh, In a different way, you know, not not like cynical modern city thinking, but sort of like uh, I think Richard calls it magical thinking, magical thinking of wind gap. I don't know. I I think it's kind of lovely in this also very like creepy and unsettling way. So,
2: well, I think there's a tendency to think, you know, at least from my perspective anyway, that like, oh well, everything has been so sort of homogenized, and you know, social media, the internet has made every community big or small sort of vaguely the same, but like. In point of fact, like, there, I mean, depending on the community, obviously there, there is going to be sort of regional specificity, local, you know, specificity. And, and, and I think that, uh, it's an interesting way to be reminded of it, you know, sort of through the lens of this very dark show.
0: Yeah. Um and so I th- I think that that's all that Richard does except for an interaction with Camille that we'll get to but that's sort of like the Richard the Richard thread of the yeah. episode. Um so let's go back to the beginning which is the Preaker family getting ready for the funeral. Camille's wearing her mother's dress. Um and we see her down in the kitchen and there's this interesting moment where she goes to like cut an apple and adora's like let me do that and then of course adora's not gonna do anything <laughs> yeah. and so yeah. like the maid comes in gala and actually cuts the apple um but it's just sort of like this you you don't get to hold a knife and at the end yeah. of that scene we see gala gather up all the knives and sort of like move them away from-
2: as if camille's just gonna start cutting right there yeah like, yeah just, like, you know. at the breakfast table in front of her sister just and her stepdad
0: just slice an apple and then you know go to town yourself no yeah it's just carve an apple into your (laughs) life right yeah so it's a it's an interesting um but it's an interesting like unsaid moment i didn't feel too heavy-handed to me i thought it was kind of interesting and like these ways in which adora expresses like both care and not like adora is such a like punishing presence on camille in this episode but then that also feels like kind of like an act of self-care but it's also like an act of shaming right a public shaming like no no you don't get to hold a knife you know sort of
2: oh fully i mean she knows that other people can see her doing it you know it's it's um it's out of a sort of concern that is less about camille's well-being and more about the sort of propriety of the house like we won't be doing that here
0: right appearances again Um, I should say that both, uh, Camille and Adora, um, Amy Adams and, uh, Patricia Clarkson look amazing in their, in their funeral garb. They show up to the funeral, like wearing sunglasses in their like beautiful black dresses. And, um, this is, this is a little detail that I really like. We, you know, they go, they come in, they sit with Jackie, always love a Jackie scene. And, um, like they mentioned that they were holding the funeral basically until the preakers arrived, like until Adora got there because she's like the queen of this town and you don't start the thing without her. And that was like, uh, that's just a very, it's a very small moment, but it's like really underlines the, the role that, that Adora plays in the town. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you're from hog money, you know, it's just, yeah,
0: that, that good, good hog money. (laughs) Uh, this uh you know and then we get to see uh camille doing doing some reporting. what did you think of of like camille's uh i don't know her notes and the way that she's taking in the the room and the scene there i mean i
2: i i, I don't know because i like um i guess no that's not true i so i don't really do a lot of reporting but when i do if i'm doing something like on the scene you know from something like i do take notes i take them on my phone on my notes app Mm -hmm. um so i get but because i'm mostly because my handwriting is terrible and i don't want to carry around a pen but like um yeah so i guess it makes sense i don't know if she if a reporter would necessarily be like needing to write down just a name during a funeral but like what what that leads to is like the good thing with You know, Adora being like, you know, kind of making her stop doing it and stuff like that. So we get the kind of it serves its purpose in terms of further establishing her control over every situation she's in or her attempt to at least.
0: Right. And then like sort of infantilizing uh, her daughter like that. Yeah. And so then we get more of the Keen family. Uh, we get this eulogy from the mom and we get, uh, the great DB Sweeney. I'm mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, cutting edges, uh, DB Sweeney yeah. here as, uh, you know, Mr. Keene, the, the Natalie's father. Um, uh, this is the first. Or maybe this, no, yeah, this is the first uh, word. Okay, so like Gillian Flynn said in the interview, she doesn't like, she called them cookies. I know she meant Easter eggs. She doesn't like the idea of the words being treated as Easter eggs. So I will try not to treat them that way, but I'm just going to point them out when I see them. This is one that I saw, which is as um, Natalie Keen's mom is giving this eulogy, there's a banner behind her that, that reads hope and the, at one point, and then it reads hurt in another shot and then it's back to hope uh so that's that's like one word that sort of flashes up we also get i i like The way that Camille is reporting, because like you, I'm not really a reporter in that way, but she says stuff like, Bob Nash contaminated, which I kind of liked, or Mm -hmm. she she called the John Keene's girlfriend Jackie O. Like, who's the Jackie O? Like, stuff like that, I'm just like, I like you, Camille, and I like the way that your brain works.
2: Her notes are sort of snarky, and like, yeah, yeah, for her, you know, kind of like a a shorthand for herself, yeah.
0: Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, And then we, you know, we get this, like, um, Camille remembering... Marion's funeral we just like you're constantly flashing back to this like really uh, pivotal moment for her and the way in which she feels like rejected by her mom Uh, even in this moment where they should be have something to bond over which is the loss of Marion rejected by her mom and then uh, her dress rips Um, what did you think of this moment where her dress rips in the in the church
2: I mean it was I I. I, she said earlier like that her hips are higher than her mom's or something Mm like that I mean it's a pretty obvious way to just kind of further be like oh she doesn't quite belong here she doesn't fit here you know Uh, she doesn't uh, kind of abide by her mother's sort of strictures or whatever Um, but also you know you know they they concede here that that her body is riddled with these scars you know Um, it does make you think more and more as it goes about like how guarded you would have to be and like you know I'm not walking around showing a lot of flesh all the time, but like, you know, in in an instance like that, like that would be a real embarrassment for her, a real disaster for her, you know, because people might not know that she's done that to her body. And so you just start to think about how she has to, someone like that would have to live their life on a kind of daily basis um, with all that kind of concern and guardedness and and, um, the sort of immediate panic that you feel in that scene being like, Oh, they're going to see it. um, I think is like, is a, is a good distillation of, of, you know, what that character might be feeling all the time.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Like the first time I saw it, I didn't even think about the scars. Like, you know, I I don't think this, this doesn't happen in the book. And I didn't think about the scars. I just thought of it later in the episode as like a convenient way to like get her a a, a needle basically. Um, But uh, Gillian Flynn did mention like that. This was like an exposure of the scars to me. And so then when I watched it again, I like noticed that you can like see the scars through the rip. And I was like, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, I had thought about, because the book does explore this, just like the way Camille has to dress and like the challenges of that. The fact that like she has to wear a black dress to the funeral that cover, like to borrow a dress that manages to cover like down to her wrists up to her neck. Like all of that is not exposed to the tights, like everything, um, you know, not just her like city wear that she like has, but all this other stuff too. And so like, um, I had thought about that, but I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that rip in the side being this like huge exposure for her and the like, and Adora, not just like the decorum of ripping your dress in a church, but like Adora also thinking about the scars as well in that moment. So, um, yeah, it's uh it's it, I think it was a really good a really good move. And then and so then she like goes she goes to buy a, a sewing kit and and she sees her sister and the and the little roller girls out on town um you know stealing some vodka basically. Uh I I thought this interaction was really interesting because it just struck me I I don't know about you. I get really wary around teens. I think it's oh a, terrified, terrified. Isn't there? Isn't there this like? Yeah. There's a great John Mulaney bit around like how scared adults are of children sometimes because they're oh. so mean. Um. So what? Uh, it... Like this scene? She's like she's trying to be like so. She's like don't try your shit on me, Emma. I I know this routine. I know you have vodka. Like I get it. I know you. I was you. Like I get it. Um. But she also was just like kind of wary of these teens because they're yeah they're frightening, well, right? It's the kind
2: yeah. of thing where like you know, uh, us in the audience who are grown-ups are like, Yeah, like say say that thing, like tell tell her off that you that she you're you're like hip to what she's she's trying to pull or whatever. And you think it's working, but then there's a little thing where it's like, no, they still did they still think she's like old and weird, you know? Yep. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. like no matter how like wise or cool or knowing she seems, it's like there's still this barrier. Um Oh yeah. I'm fully terrified of teens. Um, I, I went back to my college last spring to do a thing and I was walking around campus, like terrified because I was like, there are so many like 19 year olds here. Um, and then a friend of mine said to me like, Richard, you're in your mid thirties. They can't even see you. Like you don't, like you don't even exist to them. So I took some comfort in that at least.
0: Um, yeah. So we, the, um, this whole exchange happens. The, one of the girls, I think her name's Kelsey, says like a super disturbing thing where she says, the killer's not killing the cool girls
2: yeah Uh-huh.
0: and camille gives us like what the fuck face to that so i don't know It's an interesting moment um and then we get like uh some of my favorite parts of any episode which is a, f- a phone call to curry a curry call
2: yeah yeah um <laughs> wait really quick on yeah. the on the cool girl thing yeah so what what we've learned about these girls is that one of them was kind of outdoorsy tomboy right so yeah. there we are getting this slowly developing portrait of girls who are kind of outsiders yeah um and um and not just outsiders in that they're not cool but like that they are not following a certain stricture that has been sort of assigned to them by their girlness um yeah, the kind of but, girls
0: who keep spiders in their rooms like. right
2: exactly yeah like like weirdos um uh and i think that that is important yeah
0: yeah i completely agree yeah yeah <laughs> but yes
2: curry curry call
0: a curry call. Um, we, you and I sort of <laughs> formed this thesis last week of, um, I don't know. We heard curry cough and we were not, a curry cough and we weren't really excited to hear a curry cough. Uh, in this scene, we see a ton of medication yeah. on his dining room table and his wife says something like, um, you can't afford to take this on too, not, not right now. Uh, so yeah, I would say curry is quite sick and I, <laughs> don't think he's told Camille would be my guess
2: right cuz he's kind of trying to soften it he's like oh you know me i don't drink on the weekdays anymore right um you know i'm not smoking and 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 it's he's sort of couching it to her in this sort of like i'm just trying to be healthy but like clearly we are seeing that there's a deeper issue happening yeah.
0: um we see Camille outside the house, uh, like, where the wake, she's going to go in for the wake, and she uh, she's fiddling with a needle on her, like, finger pad, which I really liked. She sees Bob Nash get thrown out. We find out that uh, Detective Richard had, like, put a tracker on, like, Bob Nash's car, seemed like, right? Doing something yeah. with Bob Nash's car. Um, and then we get the second word that I noticed in the episode, which is, And and more obvious, a shot of the word scared scratched into her car door.
2: Which later...
0: Becomes sacred.
2: Yes. Yes. I was very proud of myself for noticing (laughs) that on the second viewing of the episode.
0: Uh, She throws away the sewing kit, uh, but she obviously kept part of it, but she throws away most of it.
2: And I think the thing with Camille seeing Richard in the parking lot originally doing something with the car and then realizing it's Bob Nash's car, I think that that makes her form a little bit of a kind of connection with him with Richard like oh, maybe a respect like oh he's like on the trail too like you know uh, you know and he's looking in the place the places i would look you know i don't know i feel like she, that makes him that makes her sort of like be on his wavelength a little bit more
0: yeah yeah uh, which yeah. later
2: le- leads to that scene that, that you know, toward the end of-
0: that affinity yeah um i love i really love camille walking into this room and the way in which it captures like and she's she's almost, you know, like Diane Fosseing it in there, like observing the social mores, the the group of guys collected outside, she's seeing what Alan's doing, she's seeing what Adora's doing. Um, and then she gets sort of bombarded by these women. What did you think of that?
2: Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. I mean, the, the, the women kind of, you know, again, like in the first episode, asking her if she has children, a very yeah. loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, saying, oh, hide the liquor, hide the men, you know, yeah. we get, we get some indication of her past. And there's a moment where you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of a cliche, these like small town bitches, you know, um, sort of clawing at, at the outsider woman, but like, I think they handle it subtly enough, you know, and, and the sort of, I I like that they changed it from the book to the show that she's not from Chicago. She's from St. Louis or lives in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. um, because it, it's not such a big leap, but it's big enough that they have to comment on it. Like one of them's like, Oh, I love St. Louis. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, in St. Louis, I don't know if you've ever been there. I mean, it's a fine city, but it's not, it's not like
0: Paris. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. The arch is actually really beautiful. Everyone should go see it; it's amazing. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that that like at, at a moment when it looked like the, the the kind of you know setting or the the sort of whole milieu could kind of tip into cliche, I think that Valet and Flynn and and Marty Knox and whoever you know was involved like reined it back in, which I appreciate
0: yeah, and I like that Jackie sort of like rescues her in that moment, um which once again, I love a Jackie scene, calls them, and she calls them vipers, which I really like She's and like, she Wait. kind
2: of also forgets having talked to Camille earlier, right?
0: Yeah, she says at the funeral, she's like, "I haven't seen him forever," and Camille's like, "I
2: just saw you. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Jackie is like not always there. No, <laughs> clearly. And
0: then, well, and she says a bunch of stuff. She's like, "Your mom's so proud of you." Camille's like, uh, "Literally not." She's like, "Okay, <laughs> not. I lie. Um, yeah. I just love Jackie. I'm sorry, yeah. I do. Um, But I like her calling them vipers because, um, you know, like in a in a show like sh- called Sharp Objects, I don't know, like giving them giving those women that that edge peace to them like you know they've they've got a bite to them uh, which they do obviously
2: well much Uh, in the same way that we've we've now seen it in two different generations of of these groups of you know teenage girls or older women um, you know self organizing around a sort of idea of like cool or insideriness or access or whatever and then lashing out at those who aren't or at least commenting on those who aren't you know so like clearly this society of wind gap has been ordered in such a way um that the show is trying to get us to like uh, understand
0: and camille is so intent on breaking out of that you know what i mean like i think you even see that like you see adora the the book underlines this a bit more that like adora has her like girl click too kind of and so it's like adora and amma are part of their little like girl clicks and camille is like yeah i don't like this and i don't want to be a part of this at all yeah she
2: literally uh, had to like break her body and soul to get out of it yeah but like at least she's out of it i mean so like i guess it's sort of a pyrrhic victory and that like you know she's she won but like at what cost
0: at what cost? Yeah. uh, so she goes into natalie's room she sees the spider she sees this like interesting thing on the mirror like basically natalie kept her slam book on the mirror <laughs> yeah <laughs> a love hate column uh, or like hate or whatever it is uh of girls names and like ann nash moved from one to the other and stuff like that so that's interesting and then and then uh we get a db sweeney scene uh where camille is doing her best to like investigate without making it seem like she's investigating um that's those are one of my favorite uh scenes in uh journalism movies where like the reporter kind of tries to pretend they're not a reporter and just like a concerned like member and she's like right. oh have the police talked to you you know they, they just like talk to people sometimes so yeah. just wondering you know um I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, this oh, is just a good
2: she, job. Yeah, she she's really great. Um, should we mention that? But going back to the, the friends thing, that they are making this kind of like shitty comments about the brother of oh, the deceased, of where they're like, should. he's yeah. so emotional, he's crying. He it seems sort of gay to me, right? Um, like more of that sort of just like casual. You know, homophobia, like misogyny in a way, like it's all just kind of very coded into the way these people kind of view the world.
0: Yeah. And they're like, well, maybe he's the murderer. That would make sense. And you're like, OK, cool. Okay. Yeah. And there was one earlier, too, when the um, police chief is talking to Richard and Richard ties his tie for him. And he's right. like, well, I like you, but don't think this means we're married. And I'm just like, all right, calm down. <laughs>
2: like, I did like when he called him Clary Starling. Though. Yeah. He called her <laughs> Agent
0: good. Starling. is was really good. Yeah. yeah that was good. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Camille, Camille. Like, lets the spider out, goes back into the room, gets caught in there by Adora, gets dressed down by Adora, and, um, Adora, I believe, uses the word sacred. Like, she's talking about the room, and she's like, How dare you go into this little girl's room? You, more than anyone, should know. This is like a sacred space. How dare you? Um, and that's when we get the next thing we see is like the, the flash of the word sacred. Uh, instead of scared, on the door. so
2: Yeah, and there's been, like, kind of imagery of sacred rooms, obviously, with um, the sister's room, but also um, Camille has these kind of, you know, very valet, quick flashbacks to her mother's room and the kind of transgression of putting a toe past a certain threshold of the door, right. you know, like, yeah. the, the implication that they're not supposed to go in there, you know, and... Um, you know, I, I guess I, I sort of, like, my my parents' bedroom when I was a kid was sort of this, like, I mean, I could go in there, I wouldn't get in trouble or anything, but, like, it was a kind of, like, protected space in a way, and it seems like this really is. So, obviously, Adora has a very strict sense of, um, of space and, uh, you know, where people can travel.
0: Yeah, and I just like the way that that was communicated, because it was, like, um, her putting a toe in now as an adult... Uh, when she shouldn't be scared to go in there. She's an adult. And then flashing back to her doing similar as a child and how verboten it was and all of that. Yeah, I thought it was really And and, really and in that
2: kind of flashback, she has this image, she sees this image of, I think it's Marion, kind of like turning back at her and like like laughing or something. There's like a fan, I guess, behind her. Mm-hmm. And Camille smiles. like So it's sort of a happy memory which like, we have not really seen her do much smiling. So like Clearly, there is an affection there that it's all not just all, you know, this kind of like grief and whatever. Um, so I don't know. It's just a nice little bit that I thought kind of further complicates the picture.
0: Yeah, um, and then we see, like, I, I like what you said earlier about um, Camille sort of having an affinity for Richard seeing him on the case, because, like, this is Camille on the case. At one point, Curry says to her, like, she's not there to solve the mystery, but obviously, like, she kind of wants to solve the mystery. Of course. So, yeah. <laughs> so she's on the case. She she had found out from, um, you know, D.B. Sweeney of Cutting Edge fame that um, – that, She was taken, uh, his daughter was taken sort of out of this field. So she goes there, she sees some kids playing. They give her some info that like this one kid, James Capisi, saw it all happen and claims that uh, the woman in white took her. So this is the wind gap town folklore that, I. you know, so when I I interviewed Gillian Flynn, I asked her, I, I was like, I don't think this is in the book she's like it is in the book. I did a word search in the Kindle app for the phrase woman in white in the book. It's not it never comes up that phrase woman in white. There is like this this idea of like a woman on the edge of the forest uh in white. But I don't think it's, like, as much of a town legend in the book as it is here, where she's just, like, she just says, like, the woman in white as if it's, like, oh, the woman in white? Okay. Um, As if it's a thing. And uh, we see, once again, subjectively from Camille's perspective, we see this, like, creepy, witchy woman-in-white figure at the edge of the forest as she's sort of, like, thinking about what happened. Uh, what do you th- what do you think of this introduction of the woman-in-white uh, idea?
2: <laughs> um, I think it's interesting, you know, again, going back to all their superstition and folklore stuff, I thought it was also funny that these two boys she talked to to get the kind of information about this are these, like, kind of, like, feral children who are just, like, dirty and sort of mean and like, like just sort of, they seem very much like of the town, like raised by the town. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they seem a, a bit parentless almost. Um, so yeah, I think it adds an interesting dimension. I think again, it, it sort of, it, 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 it bridges something over to true detective for season one in, in that the sort of like, well, is there actually something like more mystical happening? Um, you know, or is it just more atmospheric and, you know, cause I guess what the, um, the True Detective had the yellow king or whatever it was yeah um, so yeah so I mean I, 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 I like adding in a sort of another intriguing layer to things even if it's just there for sort of window dressing and not actually you know germane to the to the story but maybe it is germane to the story I don't know I don't remember <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, she, so she talks to, uh, you know, she goes to talk to James Capisi through the, I love this, like through this like dirty screen and talks to his yeah. mom through this dirty screen. I think what a lot of this stuff does and those like feral kids, as you mentioned, is really underline um, that class difference. I mean, I think you get it also with like um, Bob Nash and the Keens, like those are two different uh, socioeconomic uh levels like all all below adora preaker who lives in a dollhouse mansion but like you know like bob nash's car is kind of crappy um you know and like james capisi lives in like a lot of poverty and we find out later that's like one of the reasons it seems like his story is not being listened to uh is because his mom you know like works for adora that's sort of like something that that camille brings up but this idea of the class divide in wind gap the 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 large class divide and and what that means um i think is something that like the book lightly touches on in this show is really finding more space to dig into um especially with the figure of the mom who's like so you know she's sick she apparently she used meth at some point in her life and she's just like like a ghostly figure in and of herself. This is kind of like ghastly ghostly figure herself. So I I really like the stuff. So, um, do you know if there are like <laughs> what this this idea also throughout the the story and and we got it last week too. We keep saying you and I are not really journalists. We're like more, you know, critics, reviewers, pop culture writers where we are. But this idea of certain journalistic standards keep coming up so like Camille can't pay for an interview and she's like pretty adamant about that. Last week we got this whole like are you allowed to talk to a teen uh right. <laughs> un, unaccompanied uh are you allowed to go into some girl's room uh without her mother's permission uh and, and talk about and let her spider out you know like all this sort of stuff
2: yeah i mean and the show kind of treats it as this like hard and fast rule yeah and i'm not really sure what the actual i mean obviously there's no law but like i don't think anyway but like she was invited into the home but um yeah, but like the, the idea that like it's this com- complete violation and then if she did not get permission, she can't use it in the story. And if she does, it's everything's ruined. Um, that feels a little bit like just trying to amp up some dramatic stakes, which I'm fine with, you know. Um, I just don't know that that conversation would happen in quite the same way in a real journalistic setting, but maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong.
0: I think that's true. I think it works in terms of like um how you know to to jump to that part it works in like in terms of how quickly we see her lie even to someone who like she cares about and it's yeah. not a it's mm-hmm. not a malicious lie it's like a cover her own ass lie cuz she really wants to like do well for him you know and so like that that works and then and then this whole like because of this altercation with her mother she's like fuck it i'm leaving it in you know like i just like th- what it does for character around it um, makes me feel okay with it being, like, sort of a little bit of a fabrication in terms of journalistic ethics, I think. Totally. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I did want to talk about one um, one thing that um, Camille sees as she's driving around, and it goes back to something that I failed to mention at the beginning, which is this um, – There's this older blonde girl that she keeps seeing. And I will talk in the book section about my thoughts on that. But that's someone that we haven't really – it hasn't really been explained in the show yet. And Um,
2: she seems to be connected to whatever these – whatever about the toilet is triggering to her in the first episode.
0: Right, right, right. So, like, uh, we see her in in Camille's bedroom at the beginning. We see her in this train car. And and she's identifiable, I think, by, like, the blood sort of gushing down her face, which is different from the, like – um dead girls in the town who have like um the you know bloody mouths from the teeth but this this is a different sort of ghost haunting camille i would say
2: and and the and the show is doing something interesting in terms of juxtaposing we have now had like several you know ghostly apparitions of women um we obviously have these sort of these this, this pit of vipers here you know and yet when talking to um uh The police chief and to Richard, we get this continual, uh, uh, you know, insistence. It was a man did this. A man did this. Yeah. And so she's seeing a sort of world of almost kind of female menace that they are not keyed into at all um and, yeah
0: and the guys at the funeral too are like well let's start you know like they're they're looking for a guy everyone's looking for a guy who does yeah. it and camille's like yeah but what if what if james capisi is right and it's a woman and like yeah the police chief's like no way she's like really though okay maybe i don't know um i really love this scene that okay the scene that happens in the bar um I really love it as once again, a really efficient bit of storytelling because we get all this stuff with like the pack of guys at the end of the bar who were at the funeral and are now at the bar and are being like really predatory in their own way to Camille, like heckling her in a way that like um, helps you understand it. And, and it recalls to me, I mean, I I would not be surprised if they were the exact same pack of boys she flashed back to in that like scene where she's swimming in the lake and that one boy stops and sort of like aims a gun at her. You know what I mean? Like I would not be surprised if those exact, literally the exact same boys. Um, But just the way they're crowded around her at the end of the bar and then the way that she talks to Richard and he does some really efficient bit of exposition, giving you like her background of like, you know, he's like princess of wind gap bow down Messina's delivery. And that was really, really good. And like, just you get a sense of who Camille was in the town um in a way that feels graceful to me uh and and not slow. It's not like the show stops to talk about um Camille's popularity, Camille's beauty, Camille's whatever. It's like it's all part of furthering um this conversation and connection between Camille and Richard I really
2: yeah, like and it. I think that you know it it obviously the scene also highlights that like for us for the viewer, for whatever like it is actually pretty valuable to have another outsider for her to talk to yeah yeah you know because it was just her against the the, t- the town like that might get a little oppressive in a way and so and the, maybe the and the phone calls with curry don't quite do it enough because he's far away and whatever so i think that like you see that if for no other reason that he's also an, i mean she's not technically an outsider but she kind of is like yeah. he's an ally in that you know, and so yeah. there's that at least. Um, and, you know, and also all this kind of creepy talk about how hard it is to pull teeth and like that you'd have to have like a lot of adrenaline going to do it um, sets a very, very gruesome picture of, you know, beyond the already gruesome picture of what happened to this kid.
0: It's both gruesome, but also I really like Messina's delivery of like this sort of like rueful, bashful. Yes, I did buy a pig set and pull teeth out of it. Yeah, <laughs> like that yeah. is the thing that I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so just a few more things before we get to the book section. Uh, I like this uh, Camille pouring her vodka into a water bottle in her room just the way that, like, Emma was pouring the vodka mm-hmm. into the Sprite bottle. That nice connection between the two of them. Um, I like the – we get this, like, crazy – hissy fit that Emma throws over like seemingly her dollhouse she says she keeps saying it's not right it's not right it's not right like the sub detail about her dollhouse isn't right and like uh adora rather than like address that issue uh lashes out at camille and that's mm-hmm. i don't know that's something that like i think almost every sibling can relate to uh, like a, yeah. po- a point in which your parent attacked you when like you were not the one behaving badly necessarily it's not always like there's a favorite it like kind of go back and forth but like that that injustice that injured injustice of it all you know sort of thing
2: yeah and and i think that you know uh emma being so upset about this is not right about her sort of very contained world is very reflective of her mother you know who also is very controlling over her contained world and and you know so obviously things have been inherited and i think like part of the the distance between Camille and her mother is that like, she didn't value the same stuff in the same way. So maybe she's seeing kind of Emma in a, in, a, in a, obviously hyperventilating way, like that, that she sees that, she, that um, Emma and, and Adora are much more akin to each other than she is.
0: Yeah. And I, it's, it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, like the last thing I'm, I want to talk about, because there's also this connection between, these doubling, I guess, is what I would say, like that idea of like how Emma and Adora are alike and the ideas of how Emma and Camille are alike and the ideas of how uh, Marion and Camille were alike. Because you get this really interesting flash at the end of like uh, Camille in her bed. You know, we, we've watched the needle progress through the uh episode. It You know, we should we see it. She still has it. She was playing with it on the outside of her jeans. She's just like been flirting with this the whole episode. And she basically like relapses into, um, I mean, cutting or doing something with a needle. But the way that they, the way that Jean-Marc Vallée shoots it with her memory Uh, she's lying in bed and it flashes to like Marion in the coffin, lying in the coffin, and then the shot of her lying on her bed in just like a very similar position. And it's just like these these flashes of like dead girls and Camille and how dead she feels and how she like hurts herself to feel alive and all of that stuff. It's just like really brilliantly done you know
2: yeah i that 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 series of cuts is is i mean in the you know in the show um is great and you know one of them is the porn from the little shack that she stumbled into as a teenager in the first episode and so there is a sexual component to this like it's all wrapped up in a very messy ball of twine you know um and i think that it's a it's a really like propulsive ending to the episode and it ends with this lcd sound system song Um, I didn't know that I had to look that up. Um, that's really like, it's, it's not upbeat exactly, but it's got a, it's got a beat, you know? Um, and so it's a little bit kind of discordant with what we've just seen. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, I think, tightly knotted episode, um, in terms of its themes and its kind of arc.
0: Yeah, and I – I, um, well, one thing I want to say about the soundtrack, and I did miss one little scene where, like, Alan tries to comfort uh, Adora, right. and then she rejects it. And it's, like, him, him taking off his headphones, playing his music for her, which is, like, his only way to communicate with the world because he's Alan, and then her rejecting him and him putting the headphones back on, the way the music changes, played in the room and played in his headphones. Like, I thought that was really, really good. But the way that music is used throughout – and we talked about this in the last episode, like, through the device Camille has and then through Alan's, like, sound system – um, the device is interesting because uh, occasionally it helps uh, people who are not as like hip like me to like know what we're listening to. Because she'll like turn it on and like the you know it'll be like M Ward. I'm like, oh, this is an M Ward song. for <laughs> like LCD yeah. sound system. I'm like, yeah. thanks, thank you, uh, thanks, John Mark. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it's a it, I like the word you use, which is propulsive, really propulsive. Ending of the episode, I just want to see more. Um, I haven't seen episode three yet, but I'm really excited to. And and Ooh. I'm really Yeah, I'm really happy with where this this season's going.
2: What did you think of the post-credits scene of Elizabeth Perkins and D.B. Sweeney doing the Pamchenko from... The cutting edge i thought i mean i didn't know perkins had it in her but i think uh, it, uh, yeah. she
0: nailed it uh yeah. the california judge gives her 10
2: <laughs> okay <good>. toe pick
0: <laughs> toe pick all right uh if you haven't seen the cutting edge classic classic moira kelly joint uh from the 90s uh you should watch it i watched it recently i watched it during the olympics this year i sure i, I think yeah. i watch it every winter olympics it's a great, and watch the it's cutting great movie edge,
2: so. um so toe pick is our cue to end the episode if you don't want to be spoiled yeah.
0: Hog right? heat, hog heat, hog <laughs> heat. Yeah,
2: we need like like a, a hog heat <laughs> siren noise or something.
0: Here come the spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is for book readers only. Uh, and we're just going to like run through a few things. So the girl that she sees in her room in the mirror in the train car that I believe is her. I I don't know if I talked about this last week, but that I believe is her roommate from her, like the institution who committed suicide. Um, and we've talked about how, I think I've talked about how I believe that storyline is going to be, uh, expanded, uh, you know, that, that the phone or iPad touch or iPod touch, as you mentioned, uh, it belongs to her. So like, you know, she's she's, all these dead girls, (laughs) That Camille Camilla's had to yeah. deal with in her life, and and this is one. And it's interesting that they're seating her in here, um, without telling the audience who she is. She's just there, uh, and we'll figure it out eventually. So, the floor stuff is really good. Do you remember this from from the book? No. Okay, so one of the reveals at the very end of the book, uh, because Emma is the killer, um. Is that she's the teeth that she's pulled out of these girls' houses, or mouths, she's polished down and used as the inlay on the floor of her dog. Oh, house.
2: God, that's right. That's right. So-
0: so all the stuff with the floor of Adora's room and like Camille's like, you know, fear of treading on it and stuff like that is both, as you say, thematically good for the story, but also like a way to establish really, really firmly in our mind that really distinctive curved ivory inlay floor that's um, both in the, there's a shot at the beginning of the episode where Gaila, the maid, is cleaning Adora's floor and then Emma's cleaning that same floor in her dollhouse at the same time. It's a really cool shot regardless Regardless of what the floor winds up meaning, but it's um, but it's like uh you know, look for all the times that the show is like, hey, look at this floor, <laughs> it's gonna be important. There are teeth in there, um, yeah, yeah, and and, and when uh, Richard pulls the teeth out of the hog's head and he holds the tooth up, um, because you don't think of teeth as really looking like what those uh ivory inlay things look like but actually when you hold when he held that like pig tooth up i was like actually it does look like yeah. that because like with the root and all it does look like that so that was an interesting sort of moment um we get this part where Emma is like whining because she wants to go to the funeral, and then like directly after that, Richard's like, "The killer would want to go to the funeral." Um, <laughs>
2: so. <laughs> so, so here's my thing I didn't want to say in the spoilers yeah. in the non spoiler section is how uh, do you think the show is leaning a little too hard into like, well, no, a man definitely did this. Do you know? You know what I mean? Like, do you think that they're kind of indicating? They're protesting too much, you know, um, and it, to kind of almost indicate the other the opposite is true. Um, I can't really decide because I'm kind of tainted by the fact that I already know.
0: Well, what's interesting to me is I, I still don't feel like even reading the book, I'm satisfied with knowing how exactly it is Emma was able to pull those teeth out. Yeah. um and this like giving Richard this investigation with the pig like really underlines how hard it would be for her even with her two friends helping um to pull the teeth out so i uh i, I don't know about about the yoinky, but yeah the, the 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 conversation with the with the chief of police did feel a little like heavy-handed to me i would say yeah yeah cuz it's
2: just like they're just really so obviously setting him up to be wrong
0: yeah, but I don't like what's interesting to me is I so I, I know a lot of um I know a lot of book readers who are watching the show with like partners who are not book readers like girlfriends yeah. and boyfriends and husbands and wives and all this sort of stuff. And they're like um a, a lot of their partners have called Emma as the killer from the beginning. And I actually thought Emma was the killer when I read the book. And so I don't think it's a mystery that like needs to be that mysterious to be s- you know satisfying. I don't think That's it needs true. To be that surprising to be satisfying. I was um, talking
2: to um friend of all the F Podcasts, Bobby Finger about this very thing and about how much he likes the book and is excited for the show. He's like, "I mean, you know from the second page that it's clearly the girl that she did it, you know. yeah. But you don't care. It's yeah. like it, it's it's about how Camille figures that out." Yeah. So, if people are willing to like you know have it be less of a mystery and more of a process of revelation or something like fine
0: yeah exactly like i it's funny my um my friend uh friend of this pod i'll say dave oh, or, or the guy who edits this pod uh dave gonzalez uh he uh he read the book at the same time i did and he figured out it was amma because of the teeth he's like he's like why would she have who has ivory inlay in their a uh, right. dollhouse. He's like, and that's like towards the beginning of the book it's mentioned. He's like, that's definitely where the teeth are. <laughs> and like he figured that out right away and I was <laughs> that's like good. I was like that's really good. I don't know how he figured that out. But very um, sharp, Dave. But I think he's he's one sharp object that Dave Gonzalez that's but right. um but I don't I didn't figure that out, but I was just like it's Emma. It's got to be Emma or Adora. It's like either one of them. So, yeah. Um all right. So, the last thing, oh, this stuff with um This one husband that they're lingering on, I'm going to call him a husband, like this one of the guys who like, she sees at the funeral, she sees at the wake, and then she sees at the bar, and he like leaves the bar, he gives her a weird look at the funeral. Um, He's So this is Kirk Lacey, who's the husband of Katie Lacey, who's sort of like the alpha viper who came to talk to uh, Camille. Camille's sexual assault as a teen in the book is sort of – is very glossed over, and I don't believe they're going to gloss it over in this adaptation, and it's – it's actually, it's like a gang rape uh, is what happened to her as a teen, um, and I think – like whatever's happening with this one guy who I-, I would guess is probably that kid who aimed the gun at her when she was a kid um is either like he has like guilt around what happened or whatever it is but it seems like they're they're setting some significant dynamic up with this one particular, uh, guy in town. So,
2: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I really appreciate, um, especially in rewatching these episodes about the way that Valet, um, and the screen, the screenwriters have, have, have built this show is that really none of these little visual cuts and details are accidental or incidental. Like they, like there is a, we, it. We the first episode we saw her running through the woods, chased by these boys. We saw her stumble upon this like porn shack for a reason. Like that is going to come back, and I think that any lingering or loaded glance from Kirk Lacy is there again for a reason. That's gonna it's we're gonna it's it's going to amount to something. You know, I don't think there's any sort of visual wasted in this show.
0: And I mean, I think that's like what. Jackie keeps alluding to, right? I mean, we talked about this last week, I think, but, like, you know, Jackie keeps talking about her demons and all this sort of stuff, and I think yeah. that, like, I don't know who knows about the sexual assaults, um, but I think that, like, at least Jackie knows, and sure, um, that I'm interested to see how that all plays out. Elizabeth Perkins is, like, one of the show's MVPs by far for me, so <laughs> um, amazing. All right. Well, that, I think, is it. Is there anything else we missed? Um no i think we
2: covered it if we did
0: we will definitely hear from listeners um yeah please email us uh still watching pot at gmail.com richard where can people find your work on the internet
2: uh inlaid in the floor of a dollhouse (laughs) (laughs)
0: uh and i will be just outside that dollhouse pitching a fit about uh you know it's not right it's not right (laughs) (laughs) richard is not right for the floor um (laughs) The, you can find Richard also on Twitter at Rylas. I'm at Joe We will see you next week for episode three.